Welcome to the Educational Renaissance Podcast, where we promote a rebirth of ancient wisdom for the modern era. We seek to inspire educators by fusing the best of modern research with the insights of the great philosophers of education. Join us in the great conversation and share with a friend or colleague to keep the Renaissance spreading. Today on the Educational Renaissance Podcast, we're going to be talking about what it means to be teaching students to gain a prophetic voice. This is going to touch on a lot of different areas, uh, subject domains like rhetoric or composition, but also uh, what we're doing spiritually in the lives of our students, morally giving them a sense of direction, helping them to cultivate a voice where they can speak into the world uh, things that are true, good, and beautiful, and defend those things and and cultivate them in our world. This past year, Jason Colby and I have had the opportunity to lead chapel at our school, and a lot of what we've been talking about in those settings has pertained to the biblical prophets, Jesus Christ as a prophet, but also with the view of cultivating in our students a mindset that they themselves are disciples of Jesus Christ and therefore proclaimers of the truth. Therefore, they themselves will have a prophetic ministry of some kind. And so with that in mind, I want to bring in my friends, Jason and Colby, to talk about this perspective on educating students to have this prophetic voice. Jason, I want to start with you. Give give us some perspective about the prophets in general. What are some of the characteristics of the prophets that we meet in the Bible? Patrick, thanks. That's a, it's a big idea, and I think it's really important for classical educators in particular to think about the place and role of prophets and how that might change education than if we were just thinking about kind of Greek philosophers. Because, you know, we love our Socrates and Plato, and we like thinking about the seven liberal arts and all that that entails. But as Christians, we do have this whole Hebrew tradition of prophets and their education in many ways. And I think that's something that we can overlook. I think it would subtly change how we think about rhetoric or training students in rhetoric if we thought about prophetic rhetoric in the Bible and how that is different in some ways than the types of flowery rhetorical flourishes that you do get from the Greek rhetoricians and that whole tradition. It's not that there aren't figures of speech and everything in the prophets. There, there are. In fact, there's a lot going on in prophetic visions and oracles that we see. But there's also a very different sense when you have someone who's in a role of speaking for God, having a message from God to his people based on the covenant that God made with them at Sinai, based on the promises made to Abraham. Prophets function in this very unique role, and we might think of that as something that would not impact education in any way, right? Because we just think, well, God just calls someone 
out of the blue to be a prophet. And you've got some biblical examples of that. People like Hosea who are saying, oh, is it who's Hosea? Yeah, I think it's Hosea who says that he was called, no, it's Amos, says that he was called from, you know, the field to be a prophet. Um, so he had no kind of previous background. But then you do also have mention in kings of schools of the prophets, right? So there's all these prophets with Elijah and Elisha when you have that whole episode where Elijah's taken up in the chariot and the prophets there seem to be gathered together in one central location where this role is being passed on in some way. And of course, there's the special calling for folks like Elijah and Elisha, but uh, it's worth thinking about how this impact education. What does it look like to have a prophetic voice and pass on the calling to have a prophetic voice to students? We need modern day prophets, if you will, in our Christian churches. So those are some initial thoughts. It's really interesting because I think when people hear prophecy and prophets, uh, one of the immediate ideas that comes to mind is telling the future. And, and part of what you have clarified is that in many respects, the prophets and prophecy is more about divine revelation, speaking God's word to to God's people, speaking God's word to the culture, to the world in such a way. And there can be futuristic predictive elements to that. But by and large, the futuristic or, or the miraculous aspect of it isn't the core idea of prophecy. It's really that truth-speaking component of that. As we are cultivating our students to have this prophetic voice, it really boils down to this idea of proclaiming the truth. And this does something really interesting for us as educators in the classroom. And there are a couple of key ideas that strike me about this. One is that, you know, our classroom should be a place where we are seeking the truth and not just uh, seeking the truth to identify things that are true as though all we need to do is analyze a proof and we can say, yes, that's true, but to actually also be transformed by those things that are true. If we are creating a school environment or atmosphere where the truth is spoken and we say, because that's true, my life is changed or needs to be changed, that's one component. And the other component is to have a sense of honesty that before you can ever speak to the world things that are true, you have to be honest to yourself first. You have to speak true things to yourself. And I often think about students and, and even us teachers, us grown-ups in the room, how often we don't speak honesty to ourselves, where we think more highly of ourselves than we ought, or, or we might think, oh yeah, I got that concept in math, but... <laughs> You know, if I was really honest, maybe I checked out for a few minutes and I didn't get it, but I don't want to be embarrassed by that. And so there are really practical things that we can dive into in terms of how a classroom can be a place of truth-seeking and honesty. So I wanted to turn to you, Colby. Just think about 
uh, some of these things practically. How do we create an atmosphere of truth seeking in our classrooms? And I'm thinking K through 12 here. Uh, what are some things that come to mind for you? Well, there's a few things that come to mind here as we seek to cultivate that that skill, that desire, really that that longing to be truth seekers and to seek the truth. I think it does start in the classroom with the teacher modeling that. And a lot of this just goes down to, comes down to just good pedagogy of the teacher not dominating the discussion or asserting uh, his or her particular views on a discussion, really setting up a discussion for honest inquiry to occur. And that sometimes uncomfortable for Christians who are committed to teaching in a Christian way. But I think one thing we've learned from the classical tradition and this whole resurgence in classical education is that you really need to create space, space in a discussion to try out different ideas, to even posit ideas that we may not actually believe, but we want to kind of chew on them and think through, okay, if this were true, what would be the implications of that? Oh, those implications are terrible and heretical, so therefore that's probably not true. But you don't always arrive at that conclusion until you've spent 40 minutes to an hour, really, uh, teasing that out. So I would say that this whole development of, of truth-seeking begins with that honest inquiry of the truth. I think that really connects to our goal of what prophets should be, too, because the prophets say some pretty crazy and outlandish things, very um, striking, often countercultural and beyond the pale. I just think, for instance, of some of the things Ezekiel did as he acted out the siege that he was proclaiming would come against Jerusalem, for instance, in order to, to have that sort of willingness to have a, a message from God to share that's really cutting against the grain, you have to be willing to entertain those ideas. So I feel like there's a connection there between what you can see in the prophets and what we're wanting our students to be open to, open to truth, even if it rubs me the wrong way, rubs my culture the wrong way, right? And I think there's this aspect of openness to cultural critique, even as we are enculturating students and teaching them and training them, it's not that we want to set them against the culture as if the culture outside is always wrong and evil and we need to attack it. But there has to be a, a substantive place for in divining the truth, like in taking that on, being transformed by it. There is a real mourning. There is a real sense of judgment against a world that's anti-God. That I think has to be there in order for what we're doing to be a genuinely Christian education. And this makes me think of so many times in say, humanities courses where we have to read challenging literature and challenging not just because it's hard and therefore training their minds to think critically. Okay. That's all good, but challenging in the sense of deeply morally challenging, like disturbing literature that itself is prophetic in this way that calls out its culture. 
that shows the horrors of slavery and mistreatment that points out these, these things about our world. And I, the way that I think about it is, you know, so often as educators, we're talking about things like skills and what knowledge we want them to memorize for the test. And I find myself more often than not in classes thinking about what, what horrid thing about our world do we have to mourn? We have to enter into so much of the sadness and pain and hurt of our world. And that's one thing that the prophets did. And our educational experience should be about more than just these, you know, memorize these facts, these dates about history, this, that. When we do that sort of thing, I feel like we strip away the heart, like the beating heart of education itself. We need to enter into the pain and suffering. And it's partly about going there with students that they get to experience a prophetic calling from the Lord when we go there. You know, so much of what the prophets experience is when God calls them, they have this moment, right, where they, they realize, God brings them to realize how their nation has betrayed him. I think of Isaiah's call, and I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, right? And my eyes have seen the Lord. So it's these two things that I think are part of what we want students to experience in their education. They need to experience a prophetic calling. And the two parts of that are realizing their own and their, their culture's sin, uncleanness, impurity, wickedness. And then also catching a glimpse of God's greatness, goodness, purity, and those, I think, I think that that is transformative, and that's the sort of transformative Christian prophetic education we want to give. Part of what that entails, then, is in our classrooms and in our subjects that we're teaching to not just be satisfied with right answers. Did you get the right answer, or did you perform well on the assessment or the test? Did, did you get a decent SAT score? Uh, because those things aren't necessarily, they're trying to get at truth in a certain kind of way, but it's not the fullness of that transformative truth. And <laughs> it's really hard to evaluate this sometimes. You know, what it really means for our classrooms is that recognition that God is present here and that it's not just that we are here to learn stuff in these different subjects, but that there's also this divine communion where we believe that God is both present and God is a communicating God, that he speaks to us through his word, and that that's a living and active part of our classrooms. And one of the temptations in, in modern education is for the, the learning environment to be very secular, to be very materialistic, and, and have... Uh, no influences from the divine or, or things that are outside of the material world. And, and we're constantly fighting against that cultural intrusion into our, into our Christian classrooms. And so you can oftentimes step into a, a Christian classroom and it feels just like a public school classroom because it has that 
secular materialistic feel to it because of the work that we just need to do to learn our grammar, to learn our mathematics, to learn our science. And so part of the skill that a teacher needs to cultivate is to recognize and bring the students to this place of recognition that God is present here. And that makes, that makes a difference. It matters. It's meaningful in this educational environment. That's a good word, Patrick, because, you know, our, our courses can become so full so quickly of writing a comprehensive syllabus and making sure that we've got quizzes written every week and we're, we have a fair, objective way of, of, you know, grading and all those kinds of things. And, and it can become overly mechanical or, or even this worldly. And we can forget amidst all of our paperwork and numbers and hoops we have to jump through. We can forget that, oh, actually, we are participating in the formation of an individual soul. And we're actually not just calculating these numbers to arrive at some answer to get a good score on a quiz. That's so this worldly, so expedient. We're actually, as we're exploring the deep truths of geometry and algebra and calculus, we're actually gaining that glimpse that Jason was talking about a little bit into that deeper reality that God himself etched into his creation as he created it, uh, as he spoke his very creation into existence. Well, and this connects, I think, with Charlotte Mason's idea of the Holy Spirit being the educator in the classroom, and that primarily the teacher's job is to get out of the way, as it were, or at least facilitate mind and interaction with ideas in which the Holy Spirit is uh, revealing, uh, is teaching, is communicating ideas and truths. We don't just, you know, magically get things out of uh, whatever we're studying, there actually is, in her mind, a process of revelation whereby the Holy Spirit is revealing truth insofar as it is true, it's from God, and, um, and is something that we're then receiving and participating in. It's a gift that we take in, that all our students take in, even in a math lesson she talks about in this great passage of uh, philosophy of education, her sixth volume. So I think that's a really important idea too. Then we, that kind of maybe opens up the idea of a, a prophetic education or prophetic training to see how all education, all learning could be approached from this prophetic standpoint of receiving revelation from God, recognizing that it's, it is ultimately all from him. And that we need that. We rely on him for our knowledge, our truth. So in some ways then, as I think about the New Testament, Jesus, in a sense, was leading his own little mini school of prophets for his disciples. Uh, Patrick, do you want to tell us a little bit about what you uh, kind of learned as you taught your chapel series on the Gospels this past semester? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Part of what you see in the life of Jesus is the gathering of his disciples. And, and by disciples, we can think of the 12. And even within that 12, there, there was a subset of three or four that were really close to him that he was really pouring into. You know, Peter, James, John, Andrew seemed to be right at his elbow 
constantly. But even beyond the 12, there were massive amounts of people just following him, the 70 or 72, depending on which textual tradition you follow, that went out in pairs. The women like Joanna and Salome and Mary Magdalene, who uh, were part of that group that were disciples of Jesus. And they were being trained to recognize God's revelation. And so he was constantly doing these things where you've heard it was said, but this is the implication of what God said in his revelation in the Old Testament. Or he would demonstrate prophetic actions through healings, through his woe statements against Jerusalem. And they were always right there with him, walking alongside of him, hearing his words. And, and in between the sentences, what we don't see are the times that they were traveling on the road together, where they could watch how Jesus lived his life in accordance with what he was speaking, which gets to what Colby was saying. We as educators, you know, we're, we're not just teaching when we are in the act of teaching. We're also teaching when we're transitioning from class to class in the hallway. When we sit down for lunch with our students, when we, when we shake their hand when they arrive at school, when we say goodbye at the end of the day, those are just as formative teaching moments when we're thinking in, in this mindset of teaching is this form of discipleship, just like Jesus had his own disciples. Not that we are in any way like Jesus, but there's an analogy there. Jesus was raising up this generation that would come after him, who would be speaking prophetic words, that would be enacting prophetic action. We already see this in Acts, where Peter preaches a sermon on Pentecost, and almost immediately he starts healing as well. Even his shadow would like this magical thing where healing could occur if people touched Peter's shadow. And so you see this enacted almost immediately after the ascension where, where the disciples carried forth what they were trained in over those many years with Jesus. I think this really impacts how we consider the teacher's role. To think of a prophetic school and training students for a prophetic voice seems to necessarily entail that the teacher is in a way functioning in the role of a prophet. I think that's a, in spite of what I said earlier about the teacher just being a facilitator of the, you know, work of the Holy Spirit, I think that's still a high and unique calling and something that we, we might hesitate to put on these teachers that we're hiring in our schools or ourselves as parents in home education situations. To really take that on board can be frightening, I think, and also... I don't know, perplexing. What would that actually look like? I think that something that it might entail is a countering of the over-professionalization of the idea of a teacher, where we have built these systems in modern education where the teacher and the students come in and out, 40-minute blocks, and all that the teacher is supposed to do is to correctly deliver content give some emotional support, make sure that skills are practiced and, um, you know, successfully content is delivered. And that's that. It's just a subject area expert 
role. Teachers are simply passing that along. And you know, something that Patrick and I have discussed for a while is the idea of a, the apprenticeship model in the Bible as a whole and how teaching and education has this bigger, more holistic sense of uh, students being apprenticed to a master. And that's something that Jesus himself talks about with reference to his disciples, saying that a student is not above his master, but one who is fully trained will be like him. So what sorts of masters are, are we? What, what does that look like for us? And, and I think all those little life-on-life -life moments that Patrick was talking about earlier are really important there. It's not just an in and out, chug through the math lesson, and we're good. There has to be something more to it. There has to be a fuller-orbed day experience. There has to be a real following in some direction, I think, for this ideal to be realized in the classroom. What would it look like for us to take on the idea of shepherding each individual student? really really taking on that role i think one part of it is habit training um and i know we've talked about this before and patrick you've written an ebook on that but i wonder i wonder how habit training might play a role in the idea of of developing a prophetic voice for students yeah i mean habit training again just dealing with misconceptions first you know habit training isn't just about mechanical things like tying your shoes or sitting up straight. The ultimate goal of habit training is to be able to instill the kinds of habits that become your character, where you can see a child who's struggling with kindness, for instance, and can help them live a better life, to learn to relate better with his peers, with others in the world. And I think this holds true as well with living life is messy and and it entails all kinds of wrestling to hear divine revelation to hear god speak into our lives doesn't automatically mean that you follow the call that you live with conviction like jacob had to wrestle with god we are often doing that we hear this truth and we have to wrestle it and part of our habit training is getting in there and helping these young children who don't have as much experience wrestling with God and teaching them, well, how, how does that work? I think of Eli and Samuel, where repeatedly Samuel kept on coming to Eli when he heard his name being called. And Eli was training him to listen for the voice of God. What a great habit for our students to acquire is that habit of learning how to listen to God. If that's what a student learns in my classroom, that is way better than calculus in my mind. I'd love for them to learn both, but a student who can learn to listen to God is well-equipped to live a life of meaning and purpose, to follow God's call in his life, to live with conviction, to encounter the conflicts of life. I mean, we're bound to suffer and suffer greatly in life. But if there's a sense of that connection with God, where I'm listening to him and responding to him habitually, that that's my habitude, that's the environment I live in, 
then I'm well equipped to meet all of the challenges the world is going to throw at me. So, you know, that's habit training right there. And, and there's method behind that. But that big vision of a, a life well lived is what guides habit training. And as I think about habit training in the classroom, another habit that comes to mind is actually the habit of confidence. You know, as we seek to help students both be transformed by the truth and be proclaimers of truth themselves, we need to provide opportunities in the classroom for students to be comfortable with their own voice and speaking it and sharing the truth that they understand it to be. Um, if anything, so that as they proclaim the truth, they will then, through that dialogue and discussion, find their own view towards the truth, refined and honing in more and more at what the actual truth is. So that confidence factor is so important. And I think, you know, for us at Educational Renaissance, narration is a key way to begin cultivating that confidence, just giving opportunities to tell back what they've read, to, to orally or in writing share what they know to be given that opportunity to speak up and to share what they have learned. Um, that's, that's narration at heart, right? But also that discussion and that, those, uh, those discussions and arguments that, that we allow our students to get into. Again, it's just more training ground opportunities for students to grow in confidence in their own voice so that one day they might proclaim the truth in unique settings that which, in which God calls them to. Another way I see habits interacting with this prophetic voice, the confidence there too, is the is the idea of analyzing versus feeling or or responding emotionally. And I feel like this builds off of what you said about narration as well, Colby, because in modern education, especially in the older grades, we tend to focus so much on analyzing things that often we can analyze a piece of literature to death, over time that trains students in a particular type of habit where they generally respond to texts simply by analyzing them. And it's not that that's not an important skill, right? It's a great logical, you know, dialectical faculty that we have as human beings, and it's part of discerning the truth. But there is also this place, I think, for a deep emotional response, especially to the realities that say a piece of literature is trying to express about our world. And if we don't cultivate an atmosphere where we can go there emotionally, where we feel what the author of this great text is trying to make us feel, then we're missing a crucial step for students. And they need to get in the habit of, of having that sympathia that feeling together with others and that's part of what creates a compassionate moral adult is actually going through that process of walking in another's shoes through literary texts cultivating that developing that moral imagination to care to feel and then if you bring in the analysis on the side too that's really powerful but they need to feel it for themselves and they need to respond they need to respond confidently by, by creating their own works, by, by having a prophetic voice in what they write. This makes me think of the composition assignments that we give. Are we coming up with writing assignments that are calling out from students 
that prophetic voice that are encouraging them to say something meaningful that they care about and to speak to a real community? Or are they just going through the motions, writing some assignment because they needed to for teacher so-and-so? Well, that's, I mean, that's not going to be very compelling. I know, Patrick, you've written a little bit on this writing process. I wonder how that connects in with your ideas here about prophetic voice. Yeah, it, it absolutely does. I, I laugh at my students now because they, they still want to ask me, how long is the assignment? And I tell them, that's not the right question to ask. It's, did you complete the assignment? You know, did you fully express everything that needed to be expressed? Which shifts their thinking away from, did I do it right? Did I say the right things? Did I meet the requirements according to Dr. Egan? Well, no, that's not the standard that we're seeking. We're actually wanting to cultivate this sense of, did I give complete expression? Did I really understand what I was being asked and now formulate my thoughts in a coherent and comprehensive way while also being succinct and orderly and all of these other standards. What they're starting to realize now is that I'm doing something a little different with them, that I'm actually trying to cultivate their own sense of what it takes to be a person who expresses ideas. That's going to be more effective in the long term than them going, is it 12-point font, double space, two pages. <laughs> That's easy to, to, uh, to give in terms of the, the template, but the other pathway, it's a little bit harder, but it, it just gives them so many more skills in, in writing with this sense of prophetic voice. Well, you know, what we really get excited about here at Educational Renaissance is equipping you educators with tools to think differently about some of the things that we take for granted in the classroom. We draw on the ancient wisdom like today, where we are diving deeply into biblical literature and biblical worldview. Hopefully we've also uh, inspired you a little bit to think differently about your own classroom, uh, some of the aims that you may be striving for as a teacher. Uh, we're really excited to get to know you a little more through various means. Uh, every week we're posting a new blog on our website, educationalrenaissance.com. We're also on social media. You can find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter. Feel free to reach out to us. You know, how's it going in your classroom? Are there questions that this podcast raises in your mind about cultivating a prophetic voice in your life and in the lives of your students? We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening to us today.